News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. 621 on this Thursday morning. It is time now to check in with Mornings Show contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Uh, just as we approach Christmas, people are starting to share some of their horror stories online about ordering gifts. And when they open uh, the package that gets delivered, uh, they're finding, oh, wait a second, this isn't what I ordered. Um, now, this has happened to me uh, on a few occasions, but I'm uh, I'm actually not a huge online shopper um, with Amazon, at least. I'm not because I'm just always happy to well, pay a bit more if I can find something local, support a local shop. Um, but I read this one story, a news headline about how Amazon refused a $690 refund for a family who received a fake product. So the family ordered something called a graphics card and when for a computer and when the package arrived, instead they get through the packaging and inside the plastic was just like a putty material to weigh it down. And then the family couldn't return it because uh, they were told uh, that's not the real product. You'll have to return the real product. Um, so <laughs> I saw that. I was like, oops, reading all the comments on these news stories. I found that a lot of people have had a lot of issues with ordering stuff that's not uh, what whatever arrives is not what they ordered. Um, I had a funny incident last week where um, there's this out of print book for a series from the 1960s that I really wanted to get someone as a gift. And it's a set. So used online, just like secondhand copies, uh, were all over like $75 a piece. Um, and I couldn't get them all. So forget that. So I happened to find some on Amazon. Um, so I ordered those. It said it was paperback. They were only going to be $25 each which is still a little bit steep because they should run about five, six dollars in my opinion. But um, I was hoping that the cost reflected the product and that they'd be these just wonderful, super nice additions. So they arrived and Jill, they were like fake books themselves. Oh. They're tiny, they're flimsy. They have print bleed all over the pages. You can barely read some of the pages uh, from being photocopied poorly. Like these were not made in some fancy publishing house. Um, and then uh, there's no publisher info on it, just Amazon. That's it. That's it just says Amazon on the inside, which I thought was a little, little bizarre. And I'm not bothering to return them because I just keep hearing about everyone's horror stories. So you're not even going to try to return them? Nope, not going to bother. <laughs> you know what I'm going into? I'm going into uh, a mode <laughs> that Oxford Dictionary's uh, word of the year, the, this term, you maybe have already heard it, goblin mode. It's defined as being unapologetically self-indulgent, lazy, or slovenly. Um, and Oxford Languages president said that people uh, were feeling a bit overwhelmed by this point uh, in the year. And uh, that was Oxford Dictionary's word of the year, goblin mode. I had not heard that phrase before. I was a bit surprised. I had heard uh, the Merriam-Webster word gaslighting. Uh, we talked about yeah. that last week, but I had not heard of goblin mode. But uh, I imagine it's going to get more play now that it is Oxford's uh, 2022 word of the year. 
It is. And so think messy house. It refers to schlepping around in your sweatpants, not getting dressed properly, kind of giving up actually. Uh, but I think as we kick near into this uh, super Christmas days, you know, in the next week or so, that's actually, isn't it? When people start to get dressed up, uh, do their hair properly, <laughs> put on clothes that they haven't put on in, I don't know, since 2019. Um, and this term, uh, goblin it's actually been around since 2009 and a lot of people are saying they finally feel seen because of it. Interesting. It doesn't, I mean, I guess maybe it's, it's whatever makes you more comfortable, but it doesn't seem like all that much fun. Certainly not all that productive, but uh, there you have it. Goblin mode. <laughs> yeah. For those, those people who feel like they're ready to give up a little bit. Uh, but you know what? Some people are going to say goblin mode is living your best life. It mm -hmm. is, you know, a chance to just be comfortable, take a few days to not go to the gym. Big deal. Uh, but the, the slovenly part of it is a little bit concerning. <laughs> all right. Uh, goblin mode word of the year Raji thank you so much thanks Jill this is mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi well we've been talking about the new cabinet announced yesterday and we know there is now a standalone ministry for housing and Ravi Kalan who is BC's new minister of housing is joining us on the line now thank you so much for being here Good morning, Jill. Thank you for having me. Well, good morning and congratulations on the new ministry. Uh, can you talk a little bit? This is the first time we've had a standalone ministry specifically dedicated to housing. How will this be different? Well, the premier has identified and made it uh, very clear that uh, housing is one of his top priorities. Uh, he's laid out a uh, kind of a vision for how he wants to move housing forward. And, uh, and he's asked me to take on uh, the reins and uh, help navigate what is a really complex situation? I mean, it doesn't matter uh, where you are in stage of life. Everyone knows how important housing is. And right now, with the population growth we're seeing and, uh, and a whole host of other pressures, uh, communities and people are feeling it. And so uh, I'm looking forward to getting to work. I just got announced yesterday and already starting to engage with stakeholders uh, this morning. And when you say engage with stakeholders, then who would be at the top of the list as far as who you'll be talking with? Well, I've laid out uh, the three kind of main goals for me, uh, speed, supply, and synergy. And so I'll be looking at how we can improve and speed up the process. We know that, uh, you know, some communities have a much faster process and some have much less. Even as a province, we have some work to do on ensuring that we can get housing online faster. We need more supply, both market and non-market. And synergy is a third one. And, you know, I can't do this alone. And one of the lessons I learned through the pandemic, I was asked to lead the economic recovery, was that everyone understood we were in a crisis. Everyone came together at the table to be part of the solution. Not everybody agreed with everything, but that's the type of, I think, model we need for housing. We need everyone to come to the table and say, fine, I might not agree with this, but this is what's needed to go forward. And, and that's the work I'll be doing. So I'll be near meeting with uh, Mayor uh, Ken Sims uh, tomorrow. I'll be near meeting with Mayor Harvey, who's now the chair of Metro uh, very soon. I'll be calling mayors throughout the province in the next two days. 
When it comes to that, though, and we've heard from David Eby from the premier in the recent past saying that if local governments, if civic governments don't approve housing, if they don't get these projects going, the provincial government will step in and will make it happen, that he's tired of things being caught up in the approval process. Is that the stance that you will be taking or that what you will be doing as far letting governments know you need to get this built? And if you don't, we're going to step in. Well, certainly we have that tool in the toolbox, but every mayor that I've spoken to understands that we're in a crisis situation. Uh, Not a single mayor so far has said to me that, uh, hey, we don't want to bring on more supply or we don't want to be part of the solution. So the important work for us will be uh, working with all the communities, setting some targets for each community, uh, talking about how we can get meet those targets in a faster way. And, you know, if, if the worst case situation comes up where a community doesn't want to um, help support the initiative, which is a provincial wide initiative, we have tools for that. But certainly my style and my hope is, is to avoid that, because I think uh, every elected official knows how important this issue is for their communities, for their residents, for the future of our provincial economy. And so I'm confident we'll be able to navigate that without uh, using any of the additional tools. What type of housing do you think is the priority? If we're talking uh, about social housing, are we talking about uh, that term? We we often hear the missing middle. Uh, We're talking about market housing. What is the focus or, or what do you think is the priority? Well, all of it. Um, but the missing middle is a big piece for uh, certainly for me, uh, you know, ensuring that uh, people that uh, that want to have a safe, secure home have access to it. But, you know, there's not one solution. You know, I, I think it's going to be both market and non-market housing. Uh, I'll be you know, looking forward to connecting with the not-for-profit societies that need a lot of our not-for-profit housing. We know we're going to need social housing as well. Uh, we're going to need to have uh, continue to invest in uh, transition homes for women fleeing domestic violence. We've made significant improvements in that space. We're going to need to ha- build even more student housing so that students can be closer to their place of education. They don't have to travel, but it takes pressure off the rest of the housing market. So it's going to have to be a very comprehensive look but you know we've already committed to making the largest investment in housing in bc's history and premier Eby has uh, already signaled that uh, the further investments will be even higher than that and so uh you know it's a big big challenge uh, i'm under no illusion that we're going to be able to solve all the problems right away it's uh it's a complex but uh you know we have to get going on it right away and uh and uh, keen to keen to start meeting with stakeholders to address it. Uh, do you have any plans uh, for expanding things like the speculation tax or an empty homes tax, uh, those types of tools to raise more revenues or to to try and get more rental housing on on the uh, available? Well, well, the speculation tax has been a huge success. I mean, we have twenty thousand more units online right now. You know, twenty thousand units with people living in them right now that we didn't have before. People were buying up in properties here in British Columbia and using them as piggy banks and leaving them empty, million-dollar homes. And so now we have twenty thousand more people uh, online. It's been a success. Certainly, we're happy to look with communities uh, that are interested in, in coming on. You know, if we see crisis situations, we're going to engage with communities to say. Perhaps you should join uh, and be part of this because the communities that have already seen it have seen a huge success. But we're going to need a whole host of other measures uh, to get housing online uh, faster. And, uh, of course, a whole variety of housing. It can't just be uh, housing that's, you know, for, for millionaires. It has to be for the middle class. People need to see an opportunity to buy a home. Uh, we have doctors and nurses who are coming to British Columbia 
to, to be part of our healthcare system, which we critically need. And with their combined incomes, they can't afford a place. And so it's going to be housing for purchase, but also critically important is affordable rental units. And so, uh, again, it's going to require a comprehensive strategy. Uh, one of the things I've asked my staff to do is look at our housing strategy. We need to refresh it. Uh, things have changed coming out of the pandemic, and we need to reflect that change in, in our strategy as well. Uh, you're also going to be a government house leader when the house resumes in February and uh, taking on that role. Um, Minister, one other question. We've only got about a minute left, though. Uh, under those roles, you are also going to be receiving that forensic audit of B.C. housing. Are you ready to change things there, depending on what that audit shows? Certainly. I mean, the premier uh, saw some potential issues, asked for uh, an outside lens uh, to ensure that all the practices are, um, uh, you know, uh, above board and at the level that we need them to be at. Uh, I look forward to seeing that forensic audit. And of course, uh, when it comes through and any recommendations we see, we're going to implement. All right, Minister Ravi Kalon, thank you so much for your time this morning. Great. Thanks for having me, Jill. Stay safe. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, Vancouver City Council has approved a plan to investigate the use of body cameras on Vancouver police officers. The motion was just approved yesterday and it directs civic staff to work with the VPD and other stakeholders to identify what the cost would be and what it would look like to fully implement cameras for on-duty frontline officers by 2025. Well, we wanted to take a look at where this has been tried in other jurisdictions. And joining us now is Superintendent Michael Barsky, Managing Inspector of the Toronto Police Services Body Worn Camera Pilot Project. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the pilot project and how that unfolded with the, the Toronto Police? Yeah, so we started our pilot back, uh, well, almost eight and a half years ago now. And uh, we're now in a full rollout of cameras uh, in the service. But when we did our pilot, um, you know, we went through all your typical RFP process and whatnot to find the right uh, vendors and the right uh, technologies. Um, but eight and a half, seven and a half years ago, the technologies just weren't mature enough to, to be putting them on frontline officers. And so we pushed pause and we went forward with yet another RFP. And uh, as a result of that, uh, in August 20th of, of 2020, we began a full rollout for all of our frontline uh, 2,350 officers. So uh, we now have 2,350 cameras out in the roads, and um, yeah, they're, they're highly successful. And when you talk about the technology and how things have changed, what was the kind of uh, the, the response to it by officers when this idea was first brought out? Well, of course, when it was first brought out, uh, and as I said, this is being mindful, this is eight and a half years ago, mm-hmm. there was uh, there was a lot of um, sentiment that this was Big Brother watching over, this was just going to be used for discipline tool, this was not going to benefit uh, what they were trying to achieve on frontline policing. Uh, as a result of our pilot, though, at the end of the pilot, 85% of the members wanted to keep the cameras. Um, you know, so it, it really showed the, the credibility of the use of the technology. Um, but the reality is our team was, you know, we were lepers back in, in uh, 2014, 2015. Uh, today, I would suggest that over 99% of our men and women will not even give the cameras back because they see the benefit in them. And what do you see or what are the main benefits? Well, 
<clears throat> transparency and accountability are obviously the two most paramount. Um, you know, many people at the beginning of, of uh, the use of this technology suggested that body-worn technology would reduce use of force and complaints uh, by, uh, by and against police officers. But the reality is the caliber of, of policing that we have in this country is remarkable, and I would suggest second to none. And so the bar doesn't move that much with use of force complaints. But what it does is provides that accountability and transparency for that interaction uh, that an officer has with an individual in the community, whether it's as a result of an arrest or result of a perhaps a traffic stop. But what it does is for when that, that person is not satisfied with the service that they've been provided, it provides an opportunity for the supervisors of those officers to have a look and see what really happened. Because inevitably, with any story, there are three sides. And, uh, you know, in the past, all we had was the, the complainant's uh, um, recall of the uh, incident and the officer's recall that obviously is, is, is somewhat different. Uh, so the beauty of this is it gives us that complete transparency, that opportunity to look back and reflect on what really happened. And if it is that it's an issue with the officer, then in policing, we deal with those things. Uh, but perhaps it is that in many of these cases, it's actually not. It's, a, it's somebody that didn't want to be stopped or interacted with the police. Uh, perhaps it delayed them from getting somewhere that day and they were angry. And uh, they thought, they, you know, that that's strong, strong offense is a good defense type thing. So, um, but it, it is provided also uh, excellent, uh, best, uh, best quality evidence for the court of law. So uh, that's been very beneficial as well. And with the technology changing, I mean, it's very common today for if there's an altercation in public, there will inevitably be people with phones recording it and sharing clips of that, so maybe 10, 20 seconds. Does does the body cam footage help with that as well? And that we often hear there was a lot more to that in that it was also captured in its entirety on the body cam. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, inevitably what happens is when somebody takes their own cell video, um, they show the 10 seconds that 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 uh, accentuates what it is that they're saying. Something bad happened. Somebody, uh, you know, uh, perhaps felt that they shouldn't have been arrested or they were pushed or whatnot. What the cameras do when used properly and according to the policy and procedure, um, you know, showing the totality of an interaction shows the evolution of that interaction as well. And so why not have your own perspective of what happened? If somebody else is going to record that, whether they're directly involved or indirectly involved, why not have a perspective that, that shows and, and in many cases protects uh, your own good interests? And we only have about a minute left, but can you just explain as well, how does it work in that? For Is it all frontline officers when they're on duty, those cameras are on? When those, the, those officers are working, they're, they're equipped with the cameras. The cameras are recording whenever they are involved in an investigative or an enforcement capacity. If they're ordering coffee out of Tim Hortons, there's no need to have the recording on. And it's not a 24-7 record uh, because we're, we believe, and I think the privacy commissions across the country would, would agree, that even police officers have a privacy, privacy interest. And uh, so, But any time we are engaged with the community in an enforcement or investigative capacity, those cameras are on. All right. And it, it, it's proved uh, positive. Well, Superintendent Barsky, thank you so much for joining us and giving us this perspective where it's already uh, being used and we're getting feedback. Appreciate your time this morning. Certainly a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. That is Superintendent Michael Barsky, Managing Inspector of the Toronto Police Service's Body Worn Camera Pilot Project. That is also our question of the day with Vancouver Council going ahead looking at bringing in body cameras for Vancouver police officers. Would you like to see police officers in your community outfitted with body cameras? 
This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday morning. We have been talking a lot about the Russian invasion in Ukraine, that ongoing conflict. And we know that a few months ago or a few weeks ago, there was the announcement, uh, the creation of a team, the federal government in Canada announcing that to counter Russian disinformation and propaganda. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Marcus Kolga, Senior Fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and in the Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad, also founder of Disinfo Watch. Marcus, thank you so much for being with us today. Jill, thanks for having me on. How big of an issue is it, do you think, as far as Russia and disinformation and trying to to kind of hack into or get into these types of systems? Uh, well, that's a great question, Jill. Um, look, Russian information operations and influence operations Targeting Canada, our allies, our democracy, our society, have been a growing problem for the past 15 years. Um, they started out in the in the late 2000s, sort of in the uh, Baltic region, targeting uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Finland, with uh, historical disinformation to try and sort of uh, undermine those societies. And um, since then, they've just exploded. You know, we, of course, all saw what happened in the 2016 U.S. presidential elections when Russian information operations targeted those. Um, you know, we're still seeing the ramifications of that. Uh, uh, and what happened on January 6th is um, not directly, wasn't directly caused by Russian information operations, but certainly was a result of it. Um, Canada is also being targeted. Our democracy is being targeted. Our understanding of geopolitics has been targeted. Um, you know, and we what we saw during COVID, uh, we, I spent a lot of time with Disinfo Watch keeping a very close eye on how Russian uh, operations were uh, trying to pour fuel onto disinformation and polarization during the COVID pandemic. Um, they were promoting narratives, anti-vaccination narratives, anti-lockdown narratives, and all of that continued to the uh, trucker protest last February where, where fringe elements within that protest, the ones that were calling for the violent overthrow of Canada's democratically elected government, um, they were get, Russian state media was giving these individuals platforms on their broadcasts, on their international news broadcasts. So this is, um, you know, a serious problem. It's it's not going away. Our own intelligence communities and those of our allies around the world are, uh, you know, trying to uh, ensure that we understand that this problem is persistent. It is growing, and um, you know, we need to do something about it. We need to tackle it. And thankfully, the Canadian government has taken measures over the past few years, uh, and certainly over the past few months, um, to try and try and address it. But. Uh, but we can't leave it there. We need to do a heck of a lot more and make sure that Canadians are aware of this uh, issue, this threat that's facing them. Uh, and by doing so, by raising awareness of it, we can build greater resilience for our own democracy. And do you mean things such as blocking Russian state media, blocking those types of feeds from Canada or from Canadians or the committee, like I mentioned before? Yeah. I'm curious, when you talk about that, that this is trying to, to attack democracy, how so? So one of the things that the Russian uh, government is very good at, one of the things that they try to do is to undermine our democracy. And they do that by seeking out, and they're very good at this, they seek out and exploit the most polarizing issues uh, in our country. That could be, you know, the environment, uh, indigenous issues. Certainly during COVID, 
um, you know, that was a, a prime time for, for Russian information operations. And so what they do, they don't, they don't necessarily support the conservatives or the NDP or the liberals. They just find uh, the most, like I said, the most polarizing and dividing issues. And then what they do is they sink their fangs onto both the left and the right, and they start pulling as hard as they can. They keep putting information, conspiracies, lies onto both sides. Uh, and the, the ultimate goal is to tear apart the fabric that holds our society together. And they need to do this. This is one one of the tactics that they use. Because Vladimir Putin, um, you know, his primary goal is to stay in power. And he doesn't want his own people looking to countries like Canada and to, and to start saying, hey, we want a better life. We want democracy like they have in Canada. And so by engaging in this sort of uh, information operation and trying to destabilize our own democracy, he can point to uh, our country and say, oh, well, democracy is messy. You don't want anything to do with that. Um, so that's, that's, that's one of the tactics. And the other tactic here is to, when we're divided as a nation, when we're divided uh, in the international community like NATO, um, that's the only way that Vladimir Putin can compete with us. He cannot compete with us when we're united. And I think that our support in the context of the current war in Ukraine, Western uh, uh, unity there in, in, that, uh, in that war, in sending defensive weapons to Ukraine has demonstrated that when we work together, we can defeat Vladimir Putin, and he knows that. So he wants to break down that that cohesion amongst alliances. And when talking about that as well and kind of the disinformation about that, I mean, people have seen Vladimir Putin talk about Russia's attack and have seen things that clearly are not what we are seeing covered in that war and clearly are, is not the truth. Uh, is is that enough, though, that people can see through that and know that in that scenario it's it's disinformation or does more need to be done? Well, look, a lot more needs to be done. I, I strongly believe, because I've been you know, keeping an eye on Russian, Chinese, and Iranian disinformation already for the past 15 years. I think one of the best ways to uh, defend ourselves against those sorts of narratives, whether it's the war in Ukraine, what's happening in Iran, or, or what's happening in, uh, in East Turkestan and China, is to raise awareness of it so that Canadians have an understanding of what the narratives look like. And most importantly, why these governments are using these narratives to flood the informa- our information space and confuse us. So by, by having a, a, you know, even a basic awareness of them, when Canadians see those narratives pop up, sometimes they, make, you know, they come from, the, from state media and they'll pop up in our mainstream media, unfortunately. But when, they do, when that happens, and if we, we're armed with that awareness, we can start critically questioning those headlines and making sure that, you know, we check them and, uh, and do our own fact-checking. And I think through that process of, of building greater awareness of those, of those narratives, um, we'll build greater uh, resilience amongst Canadians um, to, to reject those sorts of uh, disinformation conspiracies, uh, conspiracy theories and, and uh, false claims. Uh, I know you're going to be holding a workshop on this uh, at the Estonian Community Hall. Uh, can you tell people uh, where and when and if people want to come or check it out? Well, sure. Um, you know, I just arrived in Vancouver last night from Toronto. Uh, in fact, I was just in Estonia uh, two days ago. Um, it's, uh, the, the event is taking place tonight at the Estonian Community Centre. I don't know the specific address, but I think you can Google it. Um, I, I'm not sure that there are too many places or tickets available at this point. But uh, basically what it is, it's a, it's a 90-minute seminar 
on uh, on these uh, the various different narratives that Russia is using, specifically in the context of the war in Ukraine today. Uh, and uh, what I hope to do is to try and, again, raise awareness of them, but also give practical tips as to how uh, members in you know, Canadians, members of these uh, various different threatened communities uh, can uh, can defend themselves against it and report these sorts of narratives to various different you know uh, social media companies and such, and how to uh, block intimidation. Because another tactic that the Russian government uses very effectively is to target uh, ethnic communities like the Ukrainian community with hate in order to try and marginalize them. So I'm going to try and uh, give some uh, tips on how to uh, uh, and resources on how to defend against that. All right, Marcus, thanks for joining us and for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. 817 on this Thursday morning. Well, we are talking more about a a precedent-setting case. This is an interesting one. It's getting a lot of feedback having to do with that story of a woman feeding bears in Whistler and the fine she is now facing. And show contributor Raji Sohal joins us once again. Good morning again to you. Hi, Jill. Yeah, this is such a fascinating story on a few fronts. So legally, the original ruling from the judge was unique already for a couple of reasons, because both counsel, so the defense and the prosecution, agreed on a much lower fine uh, under 10000 which rarely happens. They put forth a joint submission that this $10,000 penalty is what was needed for feeding bears and Whistler. Again, joint submission like that uncommon. Then the judge kind of went rogue and set that fine at $60,000 with 1,000 being the fine and 59 going towards a, a charity and conservation. That sends a clear message to people, right? That feeding bears is serious, a hefty deterrent, you know. The decision on the penalty amount though was overturned this week by a Supreme Court judge and reduced down to $10,000 around this idea of the overemphasis of certain facts and a downplaying of other ones. And that has worried some animal rights activists who were happy with that original 60K. But I talked to animal law lawyer Victoria Schroff. She had this to say about the decision. The, the Supreme Court had a chance to review what the lower court had done, and that's the provincial court, and and how they arrived at their sentencing, and decided that in the circumstances, the best thing to do was to recalibrate the fine. So it's not that um, the court is saying, oh, this person was innocent or anything like that. It's not that. It's about the sentencing. And what happened is, and I and I quote from the judgment, it's a, it's a simple conclusion she reaches. The, the judge says, the sentencing judge has erred in principle by employing irrelevant factors and overemphasizing relevant factors. The sentence imposed was far from the range of sentences imposed for similar offenses and facts. So so what what the court is there then saying is we want to really align this more with historically where we've seen fines for feeding dangerous wildlife. There was also a hinting to Devikova's financial position as being part of the reason that perhaps the penalty was as high as it was originally? Right, right. What do you think about that? Well, I I think that um, all of those factors were taken into account on the sentencing appeal. And the judge basically said, she said she considered that, you know, the actions were deliberate and planned and that she repeated the offending behavior 
throughout the summer of 2018. And so that's what the the lower court found was was really egregious. And 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 the the upper court in in altering that decision said the reasons do not adequately consider the vulnerabilities of the crown's case and the large specific benefit of the joint submission in this case of ensuring conviction. And part of that was building in the the notion of this woman being a wealthy person in Whistler who lived there part time and basically decided to be kind of somebody who decided she didn't uh, want to follow the law. That was the way it was sort of characterized. Um, and and so the the court took into account um, several factors and and decided that her financial circumstances were part of it. The justice in the appeal says that, you know, we see that the judges considered Ms. Stevakova's financial circumstances, but she also notes that there was limited evidence of her financial circumstances. Um, and so I think that there was there was a little bit of an issue there with um, the court, the upper court then saying the severity of the fine relative to Ms. Stevakova's supposed wealth appears to have been used to justify this higher penalty. And she didn't think that that was um, what should be done. Hmm, interesting. I mean, I guess the bottom line is that in this is it's still a $10,000 fine, which is still a hefty fine, or at least it would be for a lot of people. Will this act as a deterrent to, to not go buy bulk produce and leave it on your driveway for bears? Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Uh, nearby grocery stores said that uh, she had bought the food for these bears in bulk, like you say, so cases of carrots, cases of apples on a weekly basis. And yes, you're right, $10,000 is a, that's still a hefty fine. So my question is, like, are fines even working? Because I think for the most part, uh, you know, the media is doing their job and letting people know uh, that conservation wise, we're not meant to feed the bears. Municipalities are doing their job adequately by putting up signage everywhere. I mean, it's unavoidable in Whistler. You see signs everywhere saying don't feed the bears. So whether it's $100, $10,000 or $60,000, I think most people are getting that message. But for some, what is it going to take? Like, why do some people just think that they should go ahead willy nilly feeding the bears? I mean, Ms. Stevyakova, she apparently was uh, heard calling one of the bears Lily. She had, you know, named affectionately named one of the bears Lily. Um, so I don't know what is needed next to deter people. And some people worry that that 60K was going to have been that deterrent. Others say that's irrelevant, and now some worry that that being reduced down to ten thousand makes it less serious. But I think, yeah, I agree that ten thousand is still a very decent fine. And yeah, and the question is, is she is, is she still doing it? I mean, this is a one off in in certain ways. I would think it's not like we hear about these cases all the time, and uh, with people doing this, uh, maybe there's a whole lot else uh, of other things going on here. But uh, does it send the message? Does it stop this activity? Uh, hopefully, it does. Yeah, I think that people in general are aware of the dangers to bears when you feed them, um, that a fed bear could potentially become a dead bear. Um, and I think people are aware of disrupting their ecosystem. So the education is out there, but just uh, people tend towards acting in the role of God sometimes and doing what they want because they think that their little action won't affect uh, the larger system. Uh, we know it does. And then I also hear anecdotally and 
from, uh, you know, a bunch of groups that I'm a part of on social media and living in North Van myself where there are a lot of bears, I do hear about people uh, just crossing that line sometimes with bears uh, and just they completely forget all the education that we've received from the media and from conservation uh, that we're not meant to do it. And just something happens and people just start, you know, acting like the, the bears in wildlife are like similar to the Disney characters we're familiar with. Yeah, uh, certainly. Uh, and naming them, like you said, in this case, I know there have been other cases. I remember in the interior, uh, people uh, that were feeding them dog food and welcoming them onto Gosh. their property. But again, hopefully those are the, the one-offs and not the norm. And like you said, people are getting that message. Yeah. And, you know, the signage that says don't feed the bears, maybe it needs to be a little bit more extensive. Like maybe the the fine needs to be written in bigger uh, font or maybe um, there's other ways that we could also continue to get people this message to just take it more seriously. Because it's sad that three bears had to be destroyed, euthanized because of uh, Miss Deviakova feeding these ones repeatedly in her own yard. It is. Absolutely. All right, Raji, thank you so much for this. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, unfortunately, at this time of year, every year, we take a look at some of the scams that have bilked people out of thousands of dollars. And this year, it seems puppy scammers have been very hard at work. Joining us to talk a little bit more about this is Nishu Hothi, Director of Marketing and Communications for the Better Business Bureau of BC. Nisha, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's so unfortunate to, to see this and to see that people are being lured and taken advantage of. Before we get into the numbers on how big this is, can you remind us again, how does the puppy scam work? So basically, there's a lot of, I mean, we saw this a lot through COVID and we've been tracking this since about 2017. But basically what happens is, is you've got families or, or whomever looking for a new member to bring into their household and they're looking online and often they've not done this before. And so you've got, you know, posts on Marketplace or websites or Craigslist ads and you're you're finding your potential new puppy online. And that's basically where this starts because the ad itself might be fake. You might not actually be looking at a puppy that that is in existence for purchase. Uh, scammers are often taking ads from other sites in other localities and repurposing them for a local kind of advertisement. And then they're posting images that maybe they may have just found from Google. They're posting a new litter or a, a beautiful, cute little puppy that you want to bring home, but actually doesn't exist. And so that's, that's one part of it. The second part of it is that once you've decided to purchase this puppy, you know, you'll send your deposit and then they're going to start asking you for other additional fees. For example, shipping insurance, um, special insurance for the dog, a special crate that you have to have. Um, they may even tell you that they can reimburse you for the crate afterwards or they'll get it back from you or something along those lines. And it all seems very reasonable, right? You, you think, okay, well, yeah, I'm getting a puppy and maybe there is a different type of insurance and you don't know that you don't know what you don't know, but uh, you're just being added on extra charges. So that's really that's really something to be careful of. And have you seen a big increase then? Like you said, so many people welcomed new dogs and puppies to their homes during the pandemic. Did that lead to a big spike in these types of scams? 
Yeah, absolutely. So our peak um, was the peak losses kind of across North America were $3 million in the 2020-2021 years. And so that's right in those COVID years. The overall losses have come down, but the average loss has gone up. So what that means is that although, you know, people are getting smarter to the scam, those who are getting scammed are losing more. So right now we're seeing that people are losing an average of about $850. Um, That's a lot of money, right? So when you're putting down a deposit, a deposit for a puppy a year, that, that's potentially a lot of money for you. And especially at the holidays, I mean, losing money or in the hard, your hard earned dollars at any time of year is hard, but this time of year is just that much harder. Oh, absolutely. Just uh, awful. So at that point then, when somebody is in it for around $850, so what, what you're seeing with people losing, what is it that generally then tips somebody off that they're being scammed? So there's a few things you can do. I mean, first and foremost is do your due diligence, right? With any purchase, and especially if it's a purchase you haven't done before, um, a type of purchase you haven't done before, you know, make sure you do your research. I would find breeders online that have good reviews. I would find testimonials. I would ask for testimonials. Um, Do a reverse image check of the images that are being shared of this potential new um, puppy because they might have been taken from somewhere else. Try to see if you can find that ad again because if that ad has been um, repurposed from somewhere else they're probably not doing a lot of work to change the wording so take a look at those things that's definitely one part of it when you are looking for a breeder I mean there are credible breeders who have uh, been doing this for a long time and so that's really a place to start is go with someone that you know has a history that's worked with the community be able to go see your puppy right you want to be able to go visit your puppy because there's a there's a few reasons for that one is that a breeder would definitely welcome that they they want you to connect with your potential new um you know member of your household and they want you to be able to ask as many questions as you'd like so that you know how to take care of your new pet so that's something you really want to do is go in person um and then on top of all of that it's like you you want to just watch for red flags and those red flags are often things like additional charges um they're being at you're being asked to pay through hard to track payment methods so um pay through an app or send an e-transfer try to use your credit card as much as possible for online purchases because at minimum with an online purchase if it is a fraudulent charge if it isn't if you do not receive what you were paid for you can at least call your credit card company and start a process to retrieve those funds if possible are they using specific websites or are there some that are more popular than others that you're seeing these scams that come up on we're seeing a lot through social media, right? So it's an easy way to promote uh, an advertisement. So although the ad may be somewhere else, it's promoted on social or it's shared through um, kind of local Facebook groups or pages. It may be posted in Marketplace. So social media is, is always a little bit wary. And you'll see this across channels, across different mediums, that you'll get an ad for something and it seems like just too good to be true, right? Oh, what a great price or what a great product. And um, it, it's not just with puppy scams, right? You'll find something thing, you'll purchase it and the item never comes. It may have been a small investment, but it's just because these are faked advertisements and the whole goal is to take your dollars and then remove the ad, right? So they'll run the ad for a while, they'll get a few people to pay and then they just remove themselves. So there's no point of contact, there's no email, there's nowhere to, there's no phone number. So make sure you have all of those details when you make an online purchase.
Uh, it's interesting. I, I was, I found myself in a, in a kind of a sim, similar situation. I was per, looking at a product online. I thought, oh, that would be interesting. It would make a, an interesting gift. But th- there was something that just didn't seem right. And I, I Googled reviews and there were all of these reviews saying, don't do it. This isn't a real company. You're never going to get this item and, and just, uh, you know, stay away from this as far as you can. And I thought it was at least very helpful that by doing a little bit of internet research, you could see that others are out there warning people don't do this. How important is it as far as if you do come across something like this to make sure you report it or you make sure that that people know? Oh, it's so important. That is how we are able to tell you today to be mindful of this potential scam. So the BBB has a scam tracker, um, which is an online portal, essentially, where you can report fraud, even if it isn't, uh, even if you don't go as far as getting scammed, but you've caught on to the fraud, to share a report. The Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre does a similar thing for any frauds involved, uh, any fraud in in Canada, any scams in Canada. And then PetScams.com is another website that tracks these types of complaints. And so those places really help support the next consumer. So if you think if you've gone through an experience and you haven't reported it, I really do encourage you to do so because you're being a great citizen to others so that they can be mindful and catch on. Um, As you said, you saw these reviews online. We provide reviews on BBB.org as well, and ours are vetted. So um, sometimes on other sites, people will post reviews, positive or negative with their own personal intentions, right? You're right. trying to get a competitor's uh, site down. You're trying to promote your friend's company. Like, there's lots of reasons, um, good or bad. But at BBB.org, we do vet our reviews and ensure that there has been an interaction and then an experience has happened before that, that, um, you know, before that review gets posted. So do some research, as you said. Check for reviews. Another way to do it is take a company name and search the word scam or fraud at the same time. And I'm guessing for the most part, nothing really happens to these people or they go away, they realize they've been caught and they go away and just pop up somewhere else. Yeah, really, it's really unfortunate because it's difficult to prosecute those who are involved in these scams because they're often um, running this from outside of the country. So they are running an ad and posting it in your locality, but they're not there at all, um, or they're bouncing their IP addresses. And so that makes it really hard for law enforcement to be able to find them or track them down, and they don't last very long. So the ad is up for a while, as I said, and then you someone gets scammed, and they take it down, and they start all over again, right? So this is just becoming a way of, of getting a little bit of money out of you. Um, what feels like it can be a lot. I mean, it can turn into a lot. If you are purchasing a um, any, a specific type of braid, for example, I have a toy poodle, you're looking at a couple thousand dollars just at the initial investment. And then if they are telling you on top of that there's insurance or crates, et cetera, it can get much higher. So you've got to be mind, you've got to be really, really careful. We we tell everyone that you these are your hard earned dollars, and it's important that you do that due diligence beforehand. And I'm guessing there'll be even more given the holiday season and scammers trying to take advantage. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of scams that peak at this time of year, um, shipping scams, etc. But, you know, I know a lot of young kids who are asking for a little puppy to join their household. And I know that there are parents looking. And so it's really that's why, you know, we sent the alert. It's so important that this time of year, especially that parents are mindful, that gift givers are mindful so that we are, you know, that we don't see more people losing into this scam. All right. It's good advice any time of year, but especially right now. Nisha, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me.